Hello all and welcome to another episode of UBC Chronicles. And today I am Nitin and with me is Nofal and we are going to be interviewing Dr. VK Atre sir. And VK Atre sir has been a recipient of Padma Bhushan and Padma Vibhushan and also one of the most notable alumni of UBC. Sir, could you please introduce yourself to us? Yes, I graduated in electrical engineering in 1961 and then did my master's in Indian Institute of Science and went abroad. to phd i was abroad for nearly 20 years then somehow i was convinced by one professor tribhi rajaramanna who was uh, very well known for his uh, nuclear uh, explosion in pokhran and convinced me to come back to india and it so happened i was working with some underwater systems in canada so when i came back i was asked to go to naval research laboratory in kochi and uh, within a couple of years i became its director and developed what are called sonar systems for uh, uh, ships submarines and others then uh, after spending 10 years uh, 11 years in cochin i was asked to join the defense defense headquarters as the chief controller looking at all the electronic systems uh, electronic warfare radars uh, ir sensors and all those things and then in 1999 i took over as the scientific advisor from dr abdul kalam and stayed as a, a scientific advisor to, to wajpayee government to george fernandes till 2004 at which i retired from 2004 to 2014 i ran the micro nano system program for government of india And for the last four years, I don't do anything but give interviews to people like you. <laughs> so, since since our listeners are primarily from UEC, could you throw some light on your stay in UEC as an electrical undergrad? See, there were only two colleges in Bangalore, UEC and uh, BMS, and there was one college in Mysore and one college in Hubli, and those were the colleges. So. When you graduated or decided to do engineering, it was obviously UVC subjects. Uh, the teaching in UVC was, according to me, far below average. Very, very, very good friends of most of the electrical faculty, but I don't think I would consider any any of them to have shaped my career or taught me much. Textbooks were known, notes were given. and uh, we were virtually on our own uh, the other engineering departments there were two only two others at that stage mechanical and uh, civil had much better teachers there was one bear nanangar who was the principal of the college at that stage who was outstanding uh, mechanical he graduated from mit and uh, he used to teach machine design and there was one uh, couple of sewage uh, process trained abroad electrical engineering had very weak faculty but they were very friendly faculty and um, uh, they, they compensated by helping us go and study in uh, library and things like that so though I, they do not make an impression by teaching they made a big impression by looking at how uh, engineering could do many of them had come from the power and lighting department on a short term basis for teaching Uh, engineering college was one of the dominant colleges at that stage. Majority of the students, top students, used to go there, and uh, 
students used to obviously do well, and majority of the papers were set by uh, uh, professors of engineering college. So engineering college did obviously did very well. Uh, in my batch, there was a very special feature. Uh, four of my classmates, we became secretaries to government of India. I was one, and then one Professor Ramegoda, who became chairman of AICTE and started the Bangalore Institute of Technology. Uh, he also became a secretary to government of India. And Natarajan, who was director of IIT Madras, was, was my classmate. And then he also became chairman of AICTE. And there was one Sheshigiri, N. Sheshigiri. I don't know how many of you have heard his name. If India has anything to do with uh, computerized communication networks, it was Sheshigiri who did that. National Information Council, LIC network was set up by him. So four of us had become the directors, or secretaries of India of Science. That was a very unusual batch. And one of the civil engineering panel, uh, Rangaraju, became the pro-vice-chancellor of Ruki University. So it was a very powerful batch. Students were good. Teachers were very excellent mathematics faculty. And uh, as I said, very friendly faculty allowed us to do what we want, learn. And if they had asked questions, if they didn't know the answer, they would go back and do all the homework and come back and answer. So the interest in students were amazing. But their potential itself was teaching was very little, according to me. Uh, thank you, sir. And moving on, uh, you have been in this engineering field for over 50 years. So what are the changes that you have come across and feel that uh, it has changed over since you have started? And also, what are the certain things that you would suggest the current batch of engineering graduates to upskill themselves in to have a successful career in this field? It has changed phenomenally. You see, we, we were mostly uh, electrical engineering students hardly studied in electronics. Uh, we had a, spe a special course called telecommunications, which we used here, and that was the course taught by using a book on uh, one Frederick Emmons Terman, who was the Dean of Engineering at Stanford University on uh, radio engineering and electronics. Only in the last class in 1960, we were introduced to something called transistors. So all that time we used to do experiments all with big tubes, uh, tube electronics and so on. So even electronics, not known to us. We were all power uh, transformer designers, uh, uh, transmission line designers, machines, uh, generators, motors, uh, and these kind of power system protection relays, uh, hydroelectric power stations, how to build hydroelectric power stations, and so on, those kind of things. So no electronics was there. So today, there is nothing without electronics. So the change in the last 60 through 63 years, in fact, I often give lectures on the changing face of technology in 50, 60 years has happened. It's absolutely, uh, computers were unheard of. No computers were introduced in 1945, first computer, nothing. So there was no electronics. So the exposure to electronics was only when we left engineering college. So there is a phenomenal difference. And also, the, the, the understate, if you looked at the employment opportunities in India, especially in Karnataka, 
either you join the PWD department with the civil works, you know, electrical engineering department if you are a power system man. And if you want to go to higher studies and other things, there was Indian Institute of Science and of course there was only one IIT, correct for IIT at that stage. And so there was also limited. So most of them, Bharat Electronics was there of course. But Bharat Electronics was also looking at power uh, supply system, transformers. We all uh, became transformer designers in some sense, or transmission line designers. So the electronics came much later. Today there is no comparison. Uh, uh, most of the subjects which you people study, I was not even aware of. I never heard of it. I said transistors uh, was introduced, and we had never, never seen a transistor, how a transistor is to work. But and if you had said MOSFET, I wouldn't have understood what it meant. Uh, the lasers never heard of, robots were never heard of. So the, the second half of 20th century had a phenomenal change, especially microelectronics, chips and others, which changed the whole face of Tony. Today, you don't have to be in electronic engineers to work in electronics. Mechanical engineers work in electronics, civil engineers work in electronics, smart buildings, smart sensors, robotics. For example, if you look at uh, drones, to whom does it belong? Aeronautical engineers or sensor engineers or electronics and computers and control systems. And today you can do anything without microprocessors and computers, which we were never taught. So what uh, in my career, at least when I came out and decided to become an electronic engineer, everything was learned outside the structured educational scheme. And I forgot everything I learned about transformers and machines and so on. So I learned everything I knew on electronics. And uh, something like Milman Halkias book became our Bible to learn electronics. So there is no comparison. What does future hold? I'm not sure. I am not sure you can project uh, technology. Technology is so fast changing. But for certain, it's going to be dominated by computer systems. Yeah, yeah, in different formats. You can, whatever, whatever you want to call artificial intelligence and data processing and so on, and robotics, micro sensors, sensors of all kinds for everything. Uh, look at IoT. It's purely central sensor based. And look at the cell phones which we are holding. Everything is microelectronics, micro miniaturization, nano systems, and so on. And uh, I personally feel that the demarcation between the civil, electrical, and mechanical should vanish. Today, you 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 don't have to study how to build a building. It is become a standard one. A mystery or somebody will build it. You don't have to design unless you are trying to build a multi-story, heavy load carrying bridges. And uh, everybody has to learn electronics, everybody has to learn uh, um, uh, software, a little bit of computer systems, so there's no getting away from it. And uh, if you look at uh, aerospace or communication today, it's a mix of uh, different kinds of engineering together. Technology is multidimensional. I started as, a, as I said, a power engineer, and I became an electronic engineer, and then became a digital signal processing man, then became an underwater electronics man, and by the time I, re I retired, I was purely aeronautics man because I was handling LCA for a long time. 
So the demarcations vary. What do you, you learn in the basic principles? Today you obtain. I don't know whether you have ever heard of the word transhumanism. Transhumanism is that you can build electronics to enhance the capacity. Can I put a chip in my brain to improve my memory capacity? Or can I implant uh, exoskeletal muscles to improve muscle power and so on? There are all kinds of things. And the impact and of, uh, of engineering in the medical field is amazing. Today, you enter a hospital, there are so many gadgets which are all electronic based and uh, hospitals hire electronic engineers and bioelectronics. So there is no comparison of uh, the, what I learned in 1960 and what is now in 2022. In 65 years, the whole face has unbelievably, unimaginably changed. We were discussing on the way and we all wanted to know how it felt to succeed Dr. APJ Abdul Kalam as the chief of DRDO. What was so special? I didn't find anything special. <laughs> I was the director of a naval laboratory in Cochin. Kalam was the director of a missile laboratory in Hyderabad. So both of us were laboratory. I was doing developing he was driving missile. He was senior to me, he became a and uh, I followed him. There was nothing like anything special. And I had worked under uh, Professor Raja Ramana and then one Dr. V. S. Arunachalam, who was the man who started the LCA project. So I didn't find anything spectacular till he became the president. <laughs> Kalam becoming the president was, was something which was unusual. Generally, you don't expect an engineer to become a president. Somehow I was lucky he was at the right spirit. So working with Kalam was lucky with any other scientist. I didn't find <coughs> any, anything great or difference. We were colleagues for 25 years. Uh, I was a second in command when he was the SATRM and I took over from him. So. Sir, we as students don't have a clear idea on what your role was as the advisor to the defense minister, especially during Vajpayee's government. So could you explain to us what was your role and how you helped the government? In, that? in those days, unlike today, uh, the so-called uh, scientific advisor to defense minister wore multiple hats. He was the head of DRDO, which had 51 laboratories. He was also the Secretary of the Government of India for Defense Research and Development. So he had all the powers of IAS officers. Who uh, the third one was Scientific Advisor, I will, to the Defense Minister, I will tell you about that. The fourth one, as scientific, the head of the DRDO, I was also the Director General of ADA, which developed uh, Aeronautical Development Agency, which developed LCA. As scientific advisor to defense minister, your job was to evaluate systems for use by services. Not only systems produced by DRDO, but systems we were going to import. You had a technical evaluation, for example, if you want to import certain IR sensors, which for example in this did, we sent a team to evaluate how good are they, how manufacturable are they, how adaptable they are. They are to the, so there are two distinct roles. One to look at all the 51 laboratories and mentor them and guide them. Second thing is to advise the services and defense minister on the technologies that are available for uh, defense equipment. The third is make policies, look at the budgeting and other things as secretaries do. Now the fourth, the DG ADA, 
looking at how LCA could be inducted as soon as possible. So there were distinctive rules for the now at, at present they are all separated all these functions. Uh, during my Kalam's time and my time, all these rules were put into one of them. And so for all the five years of uh, Vajpayee's government and when uh, George Fernandez was the defense minister, I was a scientific advisor. So during your stay, uh, during your tenure in DRDO, what are some of the key achievements and contributions that you're really proud of? You see, as I said, when I came back to Naval Research Laboratory, building sonar. Sonars is a slightly outmoded, a difficult concept to most of them. It's like a radar. Radar, you know, is the one which you see in all airports and everything. It sends a electromagnetic signal, echo is uh, collected, compared and analyze how, how is the aircraft moving, how far is it, where is it, what is its speed and everything else. Like that, sonar is a sound navigation system. Nothing travels in the uh, underwater but sound. So building sound equipment. So we built all kinds of sonar equipments for the ships, for the aircrafts or submarines. Highlight was building the sonar equipment for the nuclear submarine for India. Part of the design was done by my group. And when I came to headquarters, my major attraction became one of electronic warfare systems. What is the electronic warfare systems is whether you can use the electromagnetic spectrum. It's all frequencies from few kilohertz to few gigahertz. And eavesdrop, jam systems, listen, listen to their enemies' communication and prevent enemies from listening to your communication. These are pros and cons, countermeasures, counter-countermeasures. And a specific type of radars. So those were the basic issues. So I would say sonar design, and then electronic warfare system design became the main issues. And then we kept to say to our the two of the main projects which uh, consumed most of my time was uh, uh, induction of Agni, the intercontinental ballistic missile, and then uh, uh, LCA, uh, light combat aircraft stages. These are the two things. Uh, and, uh, during my time, the Agni uh, was inducted into service and uh, LCA had finished all its preliminary trials. So I would consider sonars, electronic warfare systems, Agni and uh, LCA as the areas where I was deeply involved and electronic warfare systems. Uh, sir, you were a part of many prestigious institutions, not only in India but across the world. And uh, we wanted to know how one of some of the principles which were used there could be used in UVC for its development over the years? UVC during 50s and 60s prob probably was one of the prestigious colleges of India. Especially in civil engineering, if you look at across the India in 50s and 60s, most of the barrages and dams were built by people from graduated from India. Somewhere in late 70s and others, UVC went through a trauma. And uh, by the time I had gone to defense headquarters, my evaluation was UVC was a, that it was a mediocre college. I'm being honest. Students were still very good because the fees was lower, so top students still used to go there. But I'm not sure of the faculty and the structure and the management of UVC was conducive. 
So when we used to go for campus interviews, we used to avoid UBC. It had come down to such a low order. So somewhere along the line, UBC lost its dominance. And of course, private studies started coming in our way, college, Ramayana, others, and so on. So good students got attracted to them also. But UBC, I, I still believe, among the students, gets one of the best students even today. But I am not sure of the training they get. This is my feeling. And the infrastructure is also not good. In fact, when, uh, after a long time, after 20 years, when I went back to the electrical engineering department, the same kind of a machines on which I done in the ground floor used to be still there, not good ones. And you go to the mechanic engineering department, there was what's called a mirrorless diesel engine, a big one with a roller. It was still there. And I asked Nayak and the who would become the head of the department by that time, and somebody else, say, what is this? You want to change the machines. Do I have to still look at all those lights flashing and when uh, I can synchronize the electrical motor? There are other methods of synchronizations today. So engineering college, UEC, somewhere along the line, maybe because of lack of government support or lack of something else, did shine. And also the structure in engineering college, the management structure in engineering was not at all conducive to development. So much so, as soon as I retired and came back, I was asked to chair a committee to look at few years and we wrote the first document on the mission of UEC, which was later on finally in some form was adopted. Myself and one Amar Srinivasan, who was the uh, Secretary of the Department of Atomic Energy Commission, were the principal people who wrote that report, which was finally used as a base for Mr. Shadagopan to build the present kind of a structure. Um, so the lack of sufficient funding, lack of proper guidance and mentoring, in, in, independent of the excellent students used to get, UVC lost its dominance. I would hope that the presence, the decision taken by the government and government supports it. And uh, I have talked to the, the chairman of the board of governors several times, what should be done, and I have spoken to the minister. That it is necessary. One of the main things lagging, in my opinion, present in this, the, the, the situation of where is uh, the place where it's situated is not ideal for development. In the present scenario, you must have a campus. You must have all the departments on the same campus. Because the interaction between mechanical, electrical, electrical and civil, other departments, electronic, is quite, quite large. For example, if you look at 3D printing, I can do a 3D printing of a bridge, 3D printing of a building. Aeronautical parts, automobile parts. Though the software engineering can be done by electronics people, the products are more of an application-oriented products. So one of the things I still believe that is uh, not going to allow engineering college to UVC, even in, when it's autonomous, is unless they build their own campus and have all the departments in the same campus. I know there will be opposition, oh, and so on, in central the city. And the, the, with, with the kind of traffic that flows around there, there's not an ideal situation for a college. A campus must have allow students to go and sit under a tree, like a Buddha if he wants to contemplate. 
campus must be a place where students can make in small groups and do their own thing. And here you, you step out, you follow into the traffic. And building a 10 or 15 story building where the mechanic engineer department, according to me, is not the ideal way to build the college. So, so there are problems, can be solved, because it still gets very good students. What do we do? How it goes? I don't know. Only the future will tell. But is there a will? Is there a government will to bring back the UEC to what it was? Can be done. It requires some vision, some very strict monitoring, and certainly a campus. Uh, so you played a vital role in UEC's autonomy and also selecting the board of uh, the director. So. Uh, moving on, uh, like for the immediate uh, implement changes which could be implemented uh, within the students and faculty. So, what what are what would be your suggestions that could be done? Look, today, an engineering institution or a technology institution requirement of infrastructure is quite large. Recently, I had the opportunity to go to Boston and. Uh, for some reason, I spent some time at MIT and Harvard, and uh, I was taken around the departments on uh, haptics, which is uh, something to do with hands and other things, so touch sensitive, and the robotic section with us. They are hundred years ahead of us in infrastructure. Of course, they have a lot of money. We don't have to become an MIT. We can become an MIT. Forget it. In no institution in India will become an MIT institution. But can we, can we allow the students to have a choice what they should do? Why should an electrical engineer should not take a course from some other department and mix and match and do in other departments? First thing, infrastructure has to be built. So how is it going to be funded? Government itself cannot fund. I, I am sure the engineering college, uh, uh, UVC alumni are spread all over the world. Alumni has to support, we have to, industry has to support, and uh, proper infrastructure has to be built. I, I, in the present circumstance, we cannot say I'm going to specialize in all fields. It's an impossibility. Can, in, in, can UVC decide we are going to specialize in electronics, even electronics, maybe robotics, or uh, drones, or biomedical, or whatever the field is, and make sure that majority of the faculty independent of their teaching work in this area, from clusters to do research. And the research, even teaching should be preferably project-oriented. So they learn something. There's no point in teaching Kirchhoff's laws or uh, Newton's laws anymore. And the knowledge is always available. In the you don't have to remember. In our times, we have to memorize things. Any other time, you don't have to memorize it. You take a phone and you put on Google one thing, everything comes out on this thing immediately. So how to use them to build physical systems? And what are the problems involved in the physical systems? If you want to build an electronic system today, it's not enough if you just did, uh, to design on the PCB on a paper, how to fabricate, how to cool them, how to mount them such that there is no vibration, isolation. So it's a question of putting things together. So the project should be oriented like that. And I have seen some of the projects uh, done in uh, uh, 3D printing and other things, 3D science, in other in UVCE, 
They are as good as the project if they are in other departments. So this should become a matter of thing. And the, the, the whole point of uh, today education is more of a learning environment than a teaching environment. As I said in our time, the importance of a teacher was to look at where the knowledge is, transfer it. Uh, the, the, this is this is how uh, induction motor is designed. So these are the information and uh, which were not available. Textbooks were very very expensive. So they used to use classroom notes. Today you don't have to do that. Information need not be taught. Information is available. What should be taught is how to use the information. How to use the data. Data by itself is meaningless unless you make something with the data. Can that be done? Group building, cluster building. And even, even in projects, why should only electrical and mechanical do projects separately? Why can't you mix them if you're looking at a future education? These are the things which can be done. Obviously, UBC will not uh, get the kind of funding uh, Bombay IIT or Indian does. So it has to necessarily decide few specific areas in each department. In electronics, this is what we are going to do. In civil, we are going to do. In mechanical, in computer, we are going to do. Concentrate them and try to bring in money for those things, build infrastructure for that. For example, if you want to build a robotic laboratory, there should be a census laboratory. There should be a laboratory for uh, the correct kind of, of uh, fabrication and correct kind of materials. Today you cannot build a robot if you don't know anything about material sciences. Without using polymers today you can't do anything. Composite, without composites you can't do anything. So can we build that kind of a group if we want to talk? If you want to follow the standards, the, the classical thing, it's not going to work. In fact, it's not only in, in UVC, it's probably one of the drawbacks in most of the uh, colleges except perhaps a couple of IITs and Indian Institute of Science. We are still watertight compartments as civil, electrical, mechanical, and so on. Somewhere along there, this has to be broken. Engineering is problem solving. If I give you a problem and you become a project manager, you will notice that your only electrical knowledge is not enough. You need to recruit people. And if you suddenly recruit a mechanic engineer, you must be able to converse with him on mechanical engineering subjects, so you, you need not be an expert, but you must be able to understand what he is talking about. And if he says stress is this much, the strain is the opposite, say, stress tensor, and so on, so on, if you don't understand what he is talking about, you can't do that. So there is somehow a kind of thing bringing him together if you build, want to build engineering. For the majority of the students, whatever they learn, once they leave and take up a job in industry, they tend to think that's all their job. If you want to be upfront in, in technology, you've got to constantly upgrade yourselves. Keep your ears and eyes close to what's happening around the reading. You must make reading a constant habit. The technology is changing very fast. It changed fast when you were there, but, but today's rate of growth of technology is far more than what it was in the 60s and 70s and the 80s. So to keep abreast of it, all of you must study, read. Read something outside your subject. A lot, say one hour a day, 
Why, why do I have to connect my cell phone to it? Or they cannot I do it wireless. Available. Even America is trying to build roads where coils are embedded. And when the car goes over, it gets charged. Why don't we do that? Well, for example, you have all these big towers coming in for microwave transmission for the thing here. Why should the towers get power supply by wireless charging? So wireless charging is one of the things which you can do. And I don't know whether you heard now the power system people have started putting their power system transformers and others underwater to prevent the heating problem. Obviously, if you are going to put a transformer underwater, you need perfect packaging, which is a mechanical engineering job. And how to run cables from that, how to build designing cables from that. And when you say robots, your robot must be able to do anything. It could be a household robot, it could be a robot for industrial application, a robot for working in a hazardous environment, or it may be just a robot for playing games. There are a lot of commonalities between those two. So to all these things keep abreast, you must study. A lot certain amount of time in your look at this. Technology is going to change very fast. And the, today the opportunities are plenty. The only thing is that the amount of uh, information you have to learn today is probably hundreds of times more than what I had to learn. Because both the vertical spread and the horizontal spread of technology has been so vast. Coping with this. On the other hand, as I said, you don't have to remember everything. You must know where to find them. <coughs> If you can Google, you get most of the information. And then put them together to suit your purpose. That is what you have to learn. So I, can, I cannot see any engineering graduating without knowing computer systems, without knowing something about software. It's impossible. 30 to 40 percent of the work will be software. And the rest 25 percent will be computer-based, microprocessor-based, microcontroller-based, and so on. Only 10 to 15 percent come out of other mathematically oriented, physically oriented. Not that they are less important, they may be the key factors. But to build a system, you need these things. So the, the kind of education one has to impart must look at that. There is another issue which is very important, must look at. Today the environment is becoming a very important issue. And uh, sustainability is a word which you keep hearing all over the place. Your technology must be sustainable, your systems must be repeatable, use minimum of resources and get maximum output. So all this, the engineers must be aware of its impact on the society and how to overcome that. So I have a feeling in the next 30 to 40 years, the engineering education is going to change again phenomenally different with environment and ecology becoming the major issues if the world itself has to survive. So engineering education has to be metamorphosed, constantly changed. We cannot work on a fixed, uh, straight-jacketed curriculum like what we had. Either you took that course or you didn't want that course. 
must have options, you must have selectivity, a stack of electives which you can uh, specialize in whatever you want. So education has to be quite different than what it had over the last 60 years. Prospects are good, provided we have the will to do it. So if I may ask, since you talked a lot about upskilling, so what are your views on digital learning and the ethical textbook-oriented learning? Uh, digital through internet and other source. Can you avoid it? In fact, I entered the digital world when, when I went to America. I was a power engineer. I did my MTech in power. But within, two, within uh, six months of going, I became a digital man. Worked in digital signal processing. Computers were just coming, you have no choice. Today you have no choice but to look at the digital world. Again, digital world has to be redefined. Now it's internet of everything, as I said. Microsensors, internet of everything. Everything is connected to everything. Systems are not independent. You are talking about smart grids, and you are talking about multiple energy sources, you know, energy storage systems. All of them are have digital content. Other than the, the societal, finance, and other aspects, nobody can work today in the engineering without a digital field. But I don't, I don't have to give it to it's automatic. Today, look, today a youngster takes out a six-year or eight-year-old boy will operate the cell phone like as if he's a pro. So it changes. Whereas I still struggle with the phone because I've never been educated digitally, not thinking digitally. I was thinking along, along and converting it to digital. Whereas you must think digitally and if necessary convert it to analog. That's the difference. Yeah, so my final question would be, since you've been in the electronics field recently, so uh, do you feel that in, uh, India as a country would see a really good progress in manufacturing semiconductors and other... Uh, in-house um, production, basically. Next, next week, I'm going to give a major talk on the semiconductor somewhere else. Look, the point is, India has a huge amount of talent. Any Indian student who goes abroad shines. I've never heard of an Indian student failing in America. And you go to Silicon Valley, 50% is owned by Indians. You go to any American university, huge amount of Indian population, Indian students are the ones who are involved in R&D. You go to any organizations like NASA or other things, 30 to 40 percent are Indians. Indians are all over the place. The talent among Indians is phenomenal. India has been unable to use all their talents well. The first, first intent of any student graduating in engineering and science in India is to see how we can go abroad. What does it implicate? That there are no Indian institutions? There are. But the opportunities for everybody to do PhD in uh, IITs are less, so you go abroad to do PhDs. So India has been unable to utilize all its talent. All the world, the multinationals are having research centers in India. In Bangalore itself, there are empty research centers. GE has the largest research center in the world in Bangalore. Why? Because the talent is available here. But the research they do is for America, not for India. So India has been unable to properly utilize all its things. 
But the, the talent is so thick in India. Even a student comes away from very ordinary engineering, right? the top students from coming any engineering college, perhaps is as good as a student coming out of IITs. They may be marginally better. Theoretically, they may be better. But as engineers, the top students coming to all our engineering class, according to me, are equally capable of doing things. So you must harness that. Provide opportunities. Our industries should look at that. I have a feeling it's going to be done. In the next 10 to 15 years, India is going to change phenomenally. You guys, by the time you become in your mid-career, you will see a phenomenal difference in Indian technological scenario. Whereas, as I said, in America, there are no opportunities. Today, opportunities are plenty. And also today, the globally, all the barriers we had all are broken. You can be working in California, come back every three months, do a project in Kolar. You know what I mean? Right. So, there is no necessity of you being stationed in a particular project, a place to do a project somewhere else. <coughs> you can be 10,000 kilometers away. You can still do your project here. That facility was not available for us. Today, it's, it's, it's an interconnected world. The geographic uh, concentration is unnecessary. It's not a requirement. So you can have one of your projects sitting in California, the other sitting in somewhere in Germany, and uh, you may be sitting here, and your workers may be housed somewhere else. And with the tap of few buttons, you're all conversing with each other, connecting with each other, and give instructions and so on. Occasionally, you may have to visit the manufacturing site, but it's not necessary to be you to present 24 hours by 24 by 7 in a environment. So situation is different. This is where digital things become important enough. You know, today communicate, you know, this afternoon I have a meeting for IEEE meeting uh, from IEEE headquarters at 7 o'clock in the year, so worldwide is connected. And uh, out of the 50 people, uh, I don't think no more than 10 are in India, few are in China, Japan, and other things, so you all mixed together. So you go to Google, uh, and say, that's a web, and do it. And exchange information. So the interconnected world is necessary to be used, and we must exploit that. As I said, you, you can sit here and do work, work somewhere else. Whereas in our case, it was not there. You had to be physically present there. So you don't have to travel, really. A lot of, especially software people, a lot of people work from home. Is it as efficient? Perhaps not. But look at other uh, uh, logistic problems you solve. So we must exploit that. Uh, so before you wrap up, do you have any final piece of advice for our listeners? No. Good luck. Do well. But uh, you, 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 you must decide what it is that you want to achieve. Or it has to be separate from just taking money. Any, anyway, you earn enough money. Your goal should be something different. So you must have a goal. What is that you want to do? If you say, I just want to be a production engineer, I don't care, I don't, I'm not interested in technology. Okay, fine. You decide what you want to do. And then whatever you do, you must have passion to do that. And put in enough efforts. I, I don't mean you work 24 hours a day. But if you, if you are going to become a robotic engineer, you must look at what are the things you have to learn and look at that, work with passion. And work with integrity. And also you must decide, you will do your best always. 
You see, in a, in a group working, it's something very easy. My system is working, his system is not working. So you cannot point out fingers at others. You must do your best. But as long as you do your best, you don't have to worry. Engineering is a collective effort. So sometimes it doesn't mix well, gel well. Open to criticism, open to suggestions, learning. If you are ju very junior, gives an idea which you think is good, don't uh, uh, go on a spree of, uh, I am the boss, uh, my law has to be heard. Give <laughs> to the junior. Because the next generation would have learned something newer and more than you have learned. So be open and forget the ego, ego part. Getting rid of ego is not a very easy thing. It's very difficult. So these are some of the things. Be open, but have a goal. This is what, what I want to achieve. Everybody can have a Nobel Prize. But nothing prevents you saying, I'm going to work with something more and more advanced or something more and more important. And be aware of the technology's impact on the society. You must be very clear about that. Thank you for your time and uh, wise words that you shared with our listeners today. So these are your hosts, Nitin and Offil, signing off. Thank you and have a great day.